0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to hear your voice this morning. Amen. I was able to go to a sister church last week as I was out of town for a class. and uh, Boy, they, they had a fantastic sound system. But I couldn't hear anybody in the congregation singing, and I was there the whole time thinking, man, I miss LifePoint. Um, it was wonderful to be back It's wonderful to be back here again with you today. If you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. As we've dealt with in recent weeks, there's this impulse in all of us that when we hear the gospel of John to rush to verse 16 of chapter 3 because it's so well known and often quoted and, and there's nothing wrong with john three sixteen, but but we need to be careful i've argued and will continue to not to gloss over this first these first 15 verses that we find here in chapter 3 what we find is jesus disrupting everything in the religious cycles uh, of the life of in, in the religious life of of Israel of the nation at this time in verse nine of chapter one we find the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world that the, the reality is the world is a dark place even amongst the the people of God there was spiritual darkness hardened hearts those opposed to the things of God and here Jesus interrupts disrupts that darkness by being the light. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we've discussed how grace and truth is really synonymous with salvation and revelation. That when we look to Christ, we have the fullness of salvation and of revelation. In verse 29, of course, that climactic verse where John heralds, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And and, and Jesus goes on to take water and make it wine, illustrating His power over all things. That in fact, verse 3 of chapter 1 is true, that there is nothing made that has been made apart from Christ, that He owns every scintilla of the universe in His hand. Every molecule belongs to Him. That will change your perspective on the narrative of Christ's birth and that baby laying in the manger, because although he took on human flesh and he was in infancy displays so much powerlessness, there is the one that has created all things and who has power over everything. And so it is this Jesus that that knows each one of us who are sitting here today. When we read our Bible, we need to be careful not to read it in a way that we disconnect from it. And we think, oh, that's nice. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men in that first century context. No, Jesus knows what's in our hearts. And so, in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we have these words. Now, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about men for he himself knew what was in man. It's interesting. Jesus didn't need a witness. He didn't need someone to point out, hey, Jesus, there's a problem here. Uh, Brian Kendrick is radically depraved. (laughs) He knows that. Um, He knows that about me. He knows that about you. But we needed a witness We needed, and we we need approximate witness. We we needed the individual or the individuals that the Lord used to reveal and to share the gospel truth. We need to be those witnesses in this world. But Jesus knows all things, and He holds all things, and He has power over all things. And I hope that that is what we walk away with today. With that in mind, if you would, stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word as we begin in chapter 3 of verse 1. Now there was a man parenthetical. He knows what is in Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus doesn't say, well, boy, what is he talking about? Jesus knows, and so he responds, don't marvel at it, Nicodemus. Going on in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These are the very words of Christ to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence so thankful for this precious word to us. We're so thankful that you have called us from darkness to light. Father, we come before you this morning that knowing that we have not added one thing to the salvation that You have brought into our lives. And so we come here today to worship You in spirit and in truth and to marvel at the reality of what salvation is, the the new birth that You and You alone do in the life of so many who You have called and reconciled before the foundation of time. Father, might 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 we come this morning and have all of the constructions of our hearts that we associate with the new birth that are other than those You would have us to hold on to. Might they be ripped away from us. That we might behold glorious things in Your Word and in Your person. In Christ's name, Amen. We must remember as we begin this morning what has already been said to us and what we began with this morning in verse 16 of chapter 1, from, full, from His fullness, that... Fullness full of grace and truth, salvation and revelation, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. We have beloved received unmerited favor uh, on top of unmerited favor the the Hebrew or excuse me Greek word. Under a pond there is ante. Uh, the, 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 in the place of uh, the wrath that we justly deserved, we received unmerited favor. But it goes on from there. There are many other graces that He bestows upon that grace. And it goes on eternally. When we stand before the Lord in glory, we will see the reality that His grace is eternal. It is unending. It continues into every aspect of our being. We will go on learning and understanding who God is. Is never reaching for all of eternity the fullness of what it means to be a genuine born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I can remember as a very young person in my teenage years being struck with the thought of eternity for the first time. That'll keep you awake at night because uh, you think, oh, that's, that's a really long time, but my mind can't grasp how long that is. No, it's more than that. It's more than that. And, and, and I think if we're not careful when we contemplate eternity, if we contemplate the eternal apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it can be somewhat befuddling to us and uh, frustrating even because uh, we think of that eternality devoid of what's going to be there. And the reality is the eternality uh, that we are going to, as born-again believers, experience is not devoid of grace it's full of grace upon grace the Lord Jesus Christ is there and he will be there in the fullness of his glory and we will never be exhausted with worship there there there's a very real and proximate reality that I face this morning I've got 40 minutes before you and your finite being are tired of being here and hungry and this is a Baptist group so you're not afraid of mutiny if need be But our Lord will never face that problem and you and I will never face our being uh, constrained to our physical fallen frames there. We will worship Him and we will know the fullness of this phrase that John uses, born again. Friends, there's nothing in the Christian life that starts from a, a place of sufficiency in and of ourselves. Let me say that again. In the Christian life, there is nothing, nothing, nothing that starts from a place of us being sufficient in our own frames. Nothing. That thing that's rising up, but, but what about when I... Not even that. Nothing in and of us is sufficient to bring us To the new birth. The starting point and the finishing point of the Christian faith is not in ourselves. And here we have poor Nicodemus. An important man. A man of status. A ruler, here John records, of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus. And in verse 2, he says, Rabbi, that is teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We've spoken about the reality that Nicodemus' assessment there falls short of a full profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that these miraculous signs can only be delivered by the hands of, of divinity, but he doesn't fully proclaim Jesus to be the Son of God. Remember here that Jesus knows what is in the heart of all men. And He knows that... He knows the reality of of Nicodemus in his frame, that he's a religious, well-studied, spiritual, moral man. He's the cream of the crop in the the life of the nation. He's the individual who holds a high-ranking office. He's the one who, when there are eternal truths needed to be expounded upon, go get Nicodemus. Nicodemus faces a problem here. And it's the same problem that we all have apart from Christ. It is the problem that apart from the saving grace, the grace upon grace that John has already told us about in verse 16 of chapter 1, apart from that grace, the wrath of God abides upon us. And we remain in unbelief. We remain apart from grace if not for the power of God. There are so many people that 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 when the the doctrines of grace are proclaimed, when the reality that we cannot save ourselves, that we don't decide for ourselves, that we don't lean into the Gospel ourselves, that we in our strength can't bring ourselves to salvation, they'll say, but what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful declaration that is. It just so happens that that, is a, that that is a response to these first 15 verses. It is a heralding of the truth that Jesus is dealing with here. And the problem with a, with a universalistic picture of John 3.16, that everyone... And here's the reality. What is happening when people struggle with John 3.16 is they are eisegeting into the text. That is, they are reading into the text an idea of human ability. But Nicodemus literally stands one verse, one, 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 one passage off from verse 16, standing there in all of his ability for Jesus to interrupt, to disrupt that kind of thinking and say, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. And all we need for a good understanding of verse 16 is verses 1 through 15 and then verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might uh, that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God the problem that we find in Nicodemus is described in verse 18 that apart from saving belief we are all born in wretched depravity and unbelief so how do we get to belief. How do we come from unbelief, rejecting the gospel, despising it, to believing? How does that happen? Jesus here knows that Nicodemus is looking for answers. He knows that he is sinful, and, and so he interrupts him, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And in this one declaration, I would argue that we have everything we need to rightly understand the doctrine of justification. How many times has this passage been preached and the problem isn't that anything is taken away from it. The problem is that something's added to it. That's the problem in modern Christianity today. We hear the words of Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He can't even see it, I think, is what we have here in verse 3. Can't see the kingdom of God without the new verse. And so we get our modern religionists who will say, well, now. Now, we need to qualify what Jesus says here, and we we need to add some mechanisms by which you get to this new birth. Friends, that's the antithesis of everything that Jesus is saying here. We can't add anything. We can't do anything. In our ability, we are bankrupt even to inquire as to who Christ is. We have absolutely no ability. And friends, if you think that that's... Well, but if, if we read into the... To use a legal term here. When, the, when, the, when, the, when our fine Supreme Court justices hand down some of those, uh, those liberal opinions that we appreciate so much... They will write that, that well, the, the, the reason that we're writing this opinion that you can, you know, that abortion is a, um, is a constitutional right is because you have a right to privacy. And a, a good jurist will stand up and say, okay, where is that in the Constitution? And they'll say, well, it's in the, it's in the penumbra, the, the shadowy recesses. That's a fancy word that means it's not there, but we're going to say it's there. Well, that's the reality of what we have so many times religiously here, people add into this verse something that's in the penumbra, but it's actually not there at all. And we need to be reminded from Revelation chapter 22 that the seriousness of doing that very thing. John here, right. I warn everybody who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from these words of the book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I will come soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, one of the greatest problems that you and I face this morning... is that we have so much religious freedom in this nation. And we have such an abundance of what Jesus is facing here in the life of Nicodemus, a man who thinks that he can come and add to the redeeming work of God. And so in our own day, we live downstream of men packing these kinds of verses full of their own private ideas. And I want you to be free of those private ideas today. I want you to be able to rest in what Jesus is here saying and in nothing else. Because here's the reality. The second that we need to add something to Jesus, we are declaring publicly that He in and of His own person and work is not sufficient. He's not glorious in His own right. But I would argue with you this morning, everything that Jesus says is enough. And it's enough for the most difficult and despairing life to be able to rest assured that He is full of grace and truth, full of salvation and revelation, and that He heaps into our lives grace upon grace. We dare not come and pile things into this text. We dare not read into this text something that is not found here. This text is the great herald reminding men and women of their genuine need, that we all need to be born again. We know why Jesus spoke these words as we've been repeating as our benediction and will continue to. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The problem today is that we don't understand the new birth. At least we don't understand it enough. Uh, And and I I, I, I can stand behind that statement because... Churches in our generation are full of pragmatic, political, man-pleasing substitutes for real, spiritual, wrought regeneration. We substitute the new birth for a decision. We substitute the new birth for the, the, the hype person, the religionist idea of, uh, of feeling. We, we substitute the new birth for an existential experience. We substitute the new birth for bloodlines. And I tell you, it, it, trembling this morning, none of us, none of us should ever assume, and we'll get to this more in just a moment, that we are saved because of the family that we're born into. But So many people will, will degrade the doctrine of the new birth of regeneration, merely so they can be comfortable thinking that those around them are in fact in in Christ. Uh, We have men today who instead of feeding the sheep are going around building ministries to entertain the goats. Uh, We have entire apparatus where we will preach to felt needs so that people will do something relig- religious and then we as pastors, like the Pope sitting on his chair, will just declare now you are saved. Friends, I can tell you this morning that I do not have the ability to convey to your heart that you are saved. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Only you know and the Spirit knows if you are really born again. And if anyone in your life has told you that you need to do something so that you can be born again, they have misrepresented what the new birth is. There's nothing. 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 that we bring that causes the new birth. And we need to let that sink in. We live in such... Listen, we, we are in a frenetic culture, are we not? And I think some of that even inside the church is by, by pulpiteers and personalities that because of an urgency... The, the interesting thing about... And here's a rabbit trail for you. The interesting thing I think about Paul is that Paul is full of urgency with the gospel. We want to get this message out. We want this to go to the end of the earth. But Paul's urgency is always qualified with a resting in God's sufficiency. And so he'll never tamper with the message. He'll never change it. He'll never contort it. He'll always herald it in such a way knowing that the promises of God in Isaiah are true, that God's Word does not come back void, but shall accomplish all that He intends in its sending. So in our own lives, we need to slow down, and anything that is not in this text this morning... We need to be careful to receive. The reality is, I think the best way to serve you this morning, not to entertain the goats, but to feed the sheep that are among among us, is is this reality. That we need to think about what the new birth is not. That we might see what it is. The first thing, again, I've already mentioned this, It is not based on our ethnic identity. Nicodemus here in verse 1 is a Jew. And he's a leader of the Jews. Jews believed almost everyone ethnically because God had promised to to preserve this people for His own glory. Almost everyone who was a Jew ethnically was going to get into the kingdom of God. You had to live out some high-handed sin or live in complete apostasy of the Jewish faith to, to not be in the eternal kingdom. And here Jesus tells a member of the... And you have to understand how... When, it, when we talk about Jesus continually interrupting things, Jesus cuts against the grain in every strata. Uh, Jesus would have been the preacher to show up and just frustrate everyone in the congregation because we've got a good thing going here. We've got the programs we've liked. We, we, we have the systems we like. We, we've been doing this for so long. It's just normal. And Jesus consistently come in, comes in and He demonstrates His power and He demonstrates the Gospel and he, and he speaks in such a way that is so foreign to the understanding of the religious people of this particular day. And here, His, his statement to Nicodemus If you are a first century Jew, it's absolutely arresting. Because here is the leader of the Sanhedrin. Here is is the Jew of Jews. And Jesus says, You must be born again even to see the kingdom of God. That's startling. But we need to remember what's already been said in chapter 1. If you're in your Bible, turn with me to chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That statement there clearly lays at the root of an idea that the ethnicity of the individual garners redemption. Friends, the the, the reality is we may apply... This, uh, in the same way of thinking through our own families, being born into a Christian family again is a great grace. If you were born to Christian believing parents, God bless you in that. That is a wonderful gift that you were able to see modeled for you in some sense by God's grace, the gospel of two believing parents. And that may very well be the very thing that God used to bring you to saving faith. But it is not the new birth in and of itself. It's grace to be born in, into a believing family, but it is not what saves. Friends, there's also this misconception, and I get this when I talk to, are, are you a Christian? I'll ask someone. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm from Missouri. Right there in the Bible belt of, of, of America. I'm a good, red-blooded American boy. And I, I, yeah. What does being an American have to do with being a Christian? Absolutely nothing. Now, we can rejoice where we can find genuine, born-again people in our national heritage having influence. Now, we should always be very careful to just accept that, that we were a Christian nation wholesale and be discerning in our understanding of those people. Because our ethnicity, our culture, our heritage cannot be a substitute for the new birth. The new birth is also not based on teaching. Now, this will frustrate the liberals in the room. Because that's the entire impulse of liberalism. If we can just if we can just get the right teaching out there, if we can just indoctrinate people with the right program and, and the right feel good message, then everything will be okay. But but if we look here in this text, Nicodemus calls Jesus the rabbi. You are a teacher. We know that you're a teacher because of the signs that, that we are that you are doing. And friends, there's always someone, and we see this throughout the New Testament narrative, there's always a group of people who love learning and they, they they might love learning in different flavors some are more theological some are more programmatic and practical and, 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 but what they love is to have their ears filled their ears itch and they want something new they want some new new prayer paradigm they want some new program they they, they want something that they can fill their mind with that is well listen i have this really important thing that i was just taught from pastor so and so and 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 that Teaching, that body of knowledge is in their mind, in some sense, functioning as setting them apart. Friends, the only thing that sets us apart is being born again. It doesn't, and I want to be careful here. The, 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 the gospel inherently has a teaching in it. There is an, an, uh, the, the, there is an ethic here, there is a morality. It's not less than that, but the new birth is not conveyed merely through teaching. We, we can never gain salvation by a course or a degree. Those things will never justify us. Nicodemus here was a scholar of scholar, and, and the Pharisees knew their Bibles in a way that we would only dream of. But none of this could regenerate their poor souls. As I pour out teaching from this pulpit, I can't save you. I've heard people at times in in the brevity of my ministry, say, well, Pastor Jay's the one that saved me. Oh! Now, the teaching that comes from this pulpit, from the Word, may be the scaffolding by which that happens. It may be the instrument that Christ uses. But if you're saved, it's because you've been born again. And that's not something that any man can do. Now we're thankful for the teachers throughout the church age. I, I think that we're not thankful enough. I think when Paul tells us that that we're all given giftings and that throughout the churches, there's been some who have been called as pastor-teachers. I think, and I've told you this before, that the church responds to that like a five-year-old child getting a fresh pack of underwear for Christmas. Now, I know I need it, but I really don't want it. We need to be thankful for the heritage we have, not only in Baptist circles, but throughout the church age, of those who have stood to proclaim the truth of the gospel. It's not the new birth by teaching. It's not a moral living that brings new birth. The Gospel clearly commends a moral life, but morality does not save. Nicodemus, again, was a moral man. He, no doubt, was very scrupulous. And and we who are in Christ should seek to live in, in a way that exalts and commends the imperatives of our Savior. We should live not to gain our new birth through moral living, but we should live moral lives in light of what? Christ has done. Our morality will never save us. Do you remember the rich young ruler? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Chapter 19 and verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, there's that. I'm looking for a teacher to add one more thing, Attitude. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell, sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The whole point of this text here, I believe, is that when we think we can live out the moral imperatives of the law, that we really, in the, the thrust that Jesus is giving by, by naming here these, these imperatives of the Decalogue, what He's pointing to is that we must love one another and care for one another. But we can't do any of that apart from grace. Apart from grace the law, we have no righteousness, no morality in and of ourselves. The Bible tells us that the just live not by the law, but by faith. Justification is that doctrine that the doctors of the faith said that the church rises or falls on. And there is an important distinction here between us and the Roman church. And can I just real quick, as a way of, of Encouragement, don't call the Catholic Church the Catholic Church. I've just really wrestled with this, and this is some arcane language that I think, you know, some in the room will think, oh, this is extraneous and it doesn't matter. I think it really does matter. At the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church capitalized the name Catholic as a pejorative way to say to the rest of the world, we are the true church and the rest of you are going to hell. Friends, we believe in a Catholicity, that that there are even people in the Roman church in a false system that I believe are saved. But it's by new birth, not because of the church that they're a part of. And when we call them the Catholic Church, we're conceding some ground. Uh, Listen, we are part of the Catholic Church little c. We are part of the universal church, the the, the work that God is doing throughout this age. Call them the Roman Church because that's what they are. They're a a body of people in Rome blaspheming the doctrines that God has given to the church. And we shouldn't concede anything to them because their doctrine of justification is... He's leading people by the bushel to, to hell. And I don't mean if you're here today and you're Catholic, I, I love you and I don't have umbrage with you personally, um, but I will tell you that I, I think that the methodology of the Roman Catholic Church is a very dangerous thing. I can't remember who it was, maybe R. C. Sproul, Stephen Lawson, I don't remember. Someone said that the Roman Catholic Church is the masterpiece of Satan's hand. Why? Why? Because it's an entire system that says you, through your own morality, through your own works, can ultimately bring yourself to a point of being born again. The Roman church would describe justification this way. Faith, now listen carefully, faith plus works results in justification. Faith plus works results in justification. Faith plus my morality, my living, results in justification. There is some form of grace that lifts you up, but then you have to continue in your own strength. But the biblical narrative would say that faith equals justification plus good works. That is, we are saved by faith alone, and we are justified in that faith, and proceeding from that faith, though we are saved by faith alone, it is not a faith that is alone. The faith brings us to salvation and the works follow. But our works never bring us to a point of God looking down and going, alright, I wish, I wish Bobby would just do one more good thing and then I'm going I'm to birth him anew into the kingdom. That's heretical nonsense. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. It's why our beloved Dr. Luther would say to Melanchthon, who, if you remember correctly, uh, Melanchthon was a legalist. I think Melanchthon would have made a good Baptist early on in his Christian walk. Uh, he, he was, I mean, methodical in so many ways, nitpicking little hairs, and finally, Luther got fed up with him and wrote back, Melanchthon, sin boldly. Sin in such a way, and he wasn't being antinomian here, he wasn't really encouraging. He was saying It is not your goodness that saves. It is the meritorious work of the Gospel by grace alone that saves you. Sin in such a way that you believe that it is is by grace alone. I'm not encouraging any of you today to go out and sin. You've already done that. Check the box. We're all depraved. But the reality is, it is not our righteous living that will cause the new birth. The second that that enters into your mind... And it enters in often this way, I've done something bad, ergo, God, my salvation must be teetering. That is you functionally believing that your salvation is dependent on your works somehow. And you need to identify that that thought, that your works ultimately have anything to do with your justification, is a thought that comes from Satan, not from the gospel. So it's not from moral living. It's also not by adding something to your life. Here comes the, the the grand narrative of 90s preaching in America and early 2000s try Jesus out. Just add him in. Just keep doing what you're doing just tap Jesus on to the to the end. But this is the this is the pervasive religious thought today. You can and this is what happens in so many different cultic Religions. They'll go into a place, the Catholic Church is great at this, and they'll figure out the local tribal gods and the local t- types of worship and they will just infuse Jesus into that type of, that type of thinking. Just add Jesus in. Just, just, just tack Him on to the backside of whatever you are doing. And there's always a group of people who are asking the question, what more can we, can we heap on? What, what other thing what must we do? In some sense, the rich young ruler is typifying that. What other thing must I do? Living a life frenetically, constantly asking, well, what else do I have to add in? It's a mentality that says, if I just keep trying... It's the gospel according to Dory, if you've seen Finding Nemo. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep trying, just keep trying, just add a little bit on. Just do better and better. But here Calvin, I think rightly says, the term born again means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the entire nature. To be born again is not to add something to. It is to have the some substance of your nature radically changed. The problem is that the Roman view and so many other faiths will add on and spoil the true Gospel. They take grace and add to it merit. They take faith and add to it works. They take Christ and add in our own human ability. They take the Scriptures and add to that tradition. They take God's glory and they profane it with their own. But we stand on a Gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, declared by the Scriptures alone to the glory of God alone. We don't need to add anything to the new birth. We don't need to adjust justification. And finally, and probably most controversially in this room, the new birth is not the result of a decision. Let me be plain. The new birth is not a result of a decision. That is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. The, the, the problem that Nicodemus had in coming to Jesus was that he had this assumption That he had done all the religious things. Nicodemus is a man who has chosen all of the right religious paths. He's made the right choices. He's done what he thinks is right. And he has this attitude that he is safe by the things that he has done. Modern religionists have come and made the effect of our decision's new birth. They have said, if you will but... Believe, then you will be born again. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The only way you believe is if you are born again. The only way to choose, and there is a choosing, there is a running to Christ, but, but sinners don't choose Jesus. They're radically transformed by the power of the Spirit, regenerated by the new birth, and then they don't, they don't tepidly, maybe I need Jesus. They run to Him. They desire his grace. They see him as glorious, such that the history of the church is littered with the blood of the saints. That that is a proclamation that it was not a mere choice. I don't know about you, but I have choices that I'm picking up and lay down really quickly. And some of them just with a crossways look from my wife. I make choices all the time that she looks at me and I go, "Oops, oh, bad choice." She could look at me and say, I'm leaving if you don't denounce Christ. And by grace, I'm so thankful that I don't believe my wife would ever say that. But if she, if she put me into that choice, the, the answer for me is clear. I choose Jesus. And why? Not because of my volition, but because of His grace and that alone. The reality is, Being born again is not an outworking of our choice, but of God's elective decree. I mean, think about the absurdity of this. The words born again. And it's clear that Nicodemus understood the connotation of born again is connected with our first physical birth. So so if if our new birth is a result of a choice, then we have to connect that with all the imagery of natural birth. Now, my own family has been multiplied in God's kindness through natural birth multiple times. I've been in the delivery room, and all of that has gone on. Maybe some of you have children or grandchildren and can relate to this. I Also, my pastor, I'll tell you a quick story, and I probably shared this with you before, but we had a dear church member give birth one time. Her and her husband were there in the hospital at Shannon and called us up, and we took our children uh, to go with us. and, and and we didn't want all five of the nonsensical, clapworthy worthy uh, you know, that could be real great in a mother's, uh, deliver, or, uh, uh, the, the neonatal room with the baby. So we take one or two of the kids back with us at a time. And, and, and so they bring Jace in, and Jace is sitting next to me, and I'm holding the newborn baby. And this nurse walks in. And the nurse looks at Jace and then looks at the baby and says, oh, you know, and Jace looks up at me. Mind you, I I, I believe by this point, the father has stepped out of the room to go down the hallway to get one of my other children. I'm holding the baby and Jace looks at me and he goes, daddy, he looks just like you. (laughs) I looked at the nurse. No, ma'am. No, no. He looks just like his daddy. I promise you, right? like "Ah, No. It was a little bit of an absurd moment that I'll never forget in my pastoral ministry. There was an indictment there that he didn't understand. Anyway, that was absurd. It was awkward. But the only thing more absurd than that would be if a family were fawning over their new little infant, staring into his placid little countenance and saying what a fantastic child this is that he chose to be born again. I mean, he's so great, he filled out his own birth certificate. But that's what the Christian church is, is declaring just down the road in this community. That we brought ourselves to a point of spiritual infancy. I promise you, under the authority of the Word of God, we did not. It is only by grace that we experience the new birth. Friends, there's nothing here that denotes our decision has anything to do with the new birth. In fact, what Jesus is saying is you can't enter in the verses coming, but here in this verse, you can't even see. How can you make a decision about the kingdom if you can't even see it? He's being emphatic here. You must be regenerated again and from above. We dealt a little bit with the argument about whether uh, again means a second time or from above and I think the answer to that question is yep we have to be born a second time spiritually from above from God's directive and the power of the spirit alone so what is the the new birth. It's not It's not ethnic. It's not teaching. It's not morality. It's not addition of something moral uh, or teaching to your life. It's not decisionism. It is a radical transformation of the entire being of the spiritual nature of an individual. It's something that God alone does. It is something that He does apart from who you are. That's the glory of the Gospel. If you're here this morning and you're thinking about all of the sinful inclinations of your heart and the things that you have done and you're thinking, God can't save me. The Gospel is not a book of God sending His Son to find people who are spiritually sick and making them a little bit better. It is a Gospel of Him sending His Son into a world full of people who are spiritually dead and raising them to life. That is the Gospel and to, and to describe it to herald it as a gospel for spiritually sick people is to blaspheme the very works of Christ he does all of this not for us but for his own glory and some of you say but that just seems mysterious i can't fit that into my system then it, it doesn't it doesn't that doesn't come with five easy steps that doesn't come in a book that tells me, if I'll just do these things, then I can go on and live the rest of my life how I want to, that that seems like it's all in the hands of God, and apart from my control, which is what brings the anxiety in and contorts the theology, the anxious hearts of men wanting an answer where they don't have to depend upon God, but upon themselves. Look at verses six and seven and eight, rather. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said what so many in the church have said throughout the ages. How can this be? Because we have a glorious God who is loving and merciful and calls every one of His children Not in some ethereal, universalist sense, but He calls them. Beloved, if you are here this morning believing under the gospel, He has called you by name. So what's left to us, some might ask? Well, what's left to us is to take the glorious good news of this message that God saves unilaterally and by His power into the nations. Into the places where we work. Into the places where we go to school. Into our entire community. We want to live lives that, that declare not, hey, I've been pretty good or I've been pretty moral. I've learned a lot of things. I, I have and whatever it is, so Jesus came and saved me. We want to live lives declaring the Gospel reality that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the Lord by His divine decree alone brought us to new life and birthed us anew. That's the gospel that we have the joy of taking to the nation. So then some are going to ask, well, how will I know that I'm born again? There's a year's worth of sermons somewhere out there where we walked through John, 1 John. And, the, and that whole question of how will I know if I'm born again comes back to the question of assurance. And if you'll remember, John puts us into four kind of repeating categories in 1 John to to help us think through, are we really born again? And, and, And these are the questions. Do you love the truth? Do you love the Word of God? Do you want to grow in understanding it? Do you know that you are full of error? He's full of light and truth. Do you love God? Do you long for a relationship with Him? Do you understand that you need His grace? Do you love His church? Uh, it, it, in First John, chapter three, we find these. We know that these words. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. One of the ways that you can know that you're born again is that you love Christians. And let me tell you, just to be clear that that is a that is a very Catholic statement. Little c Catholic. That you love Christians, regardless of if they make error in baptizing children. Regardless if they're Methodist, if they're Assembly of God, if they're in the Roman Catholic Church. You love those people. And friends, haven't you had this experience being a Christian? That you meet someone who you don't go to church with, who maybe holds some ideas doctrinally and theologically that you largely disagree with, but you can see their love for Jesus, and for you that's enough. I experience that all the time. And we've had the opposite experience probably too. That person in our family that we love because they are part of our biological family. We love them dearly, but we know in our heart of hearts we can sense the reality that they don't love the Jesus that we love. Being born again means that you love the ones. Here's what born again, being born again does. In radically reorienting your nature, there's a lot of things that I loved prior to coming to Christ. And they weren't good things. There's a lot of people I love, I, I like, just because I like them, right? But the gospel radically transforms an individual that that group that the Bible declares the elect of God, those that God the Father purposed to redeem before the foundation of the world, that He set His love upon, that group of people, my heart now loves too. I am. Delighting in the work that God has done, I am. I'm thankful, and you can take my worst enemy and save him by grace. And it may take time in the working of the Spirit and some sanctification in my life, but I will love that individual. I love people not because they agree with me, not because uh, we agree on every fine point of doctrine, but because we have been birthed anew. We're in the same family. So, uh, that's the, the third question. Do you love the body? And then finally, do you guard the commands? Those are the, the questions. And it's interesting, Martin Lloyd-Jones tells us that if we're answering those questions, don't ever come to, well, do I love the body? Do I love other Christians? Don't answer that question head on. Answer the other three questions and that will give you the answer to the question that you're really wondering about. Because if you love your brothers, you'll love God, you'll love the truth, and you'll keep His commandments. Boy, that changes the whole, the whole the category of how we think about loving people in our society, doesn't it? Because when the LBQTP plus whatever alphabet we're on to now, people say that to love me you have to accept my way of living. No, I don't. In fact, to love you well means to look you in the face and say repent and believe. Leave the foolishness of your sin and cling to Christ and to Christ alone. And we can do that to everybody knowing that the only ones that ever do it are the ones that are born again, right? I think the other good admonition that was shared with me this week by a brother, and I went back and listened and uh, agree with wholeheartedly, is part of the problem that we have in the church of messing up the, the idea of being born again is that we often put sanctification ahead of justification, sanctification ahead of regeneration. If we can just get a group of people and teach them to be moral enough, well, then they'll they'll be born again. God's never promised anyone salvation because they live morally. And all you're doing to individuals who you tell, be more sanctified, be more sanctified, be more sanctified, without having been born again, you're just frustrating them because they don't have it in their ability to actually live the imperatives of Scripture. They, they don't have the Spirit coursing through their, their nature in such a way that they desire and they long to love Jesus and to rest in Him. And so the question really comes today, I don't care about your church membership. I don't care about how long you've served in an office in this church. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care how moral you are. I don't care how much you believe in the tenets of the Baptist faith. Because the Bible at this point doesn't care either. It begs one question of every soul in this room. Has God birthed you anew? Are you born again? Do you know the King of Heaven? I want to share with you a, a story that I love uh, about the new birth. And most of you know that I love Dr. Lloyd Jones and, and his ministry. One of the first converts in his ministry was his wife, Bethan Lloyd Jones. And I want, I want to read for you Bethan's own words about her salvation. She had grown up in a Christian home, she had done all the religious things. That thing goes on to explain that, that when when he when Dr. Lloyd Jones came to his ministry, it, he ticked a lot of people off for quite a while. And she said, "But I, it, what happened was over the years, either Martin or his gospel won them over." and 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 her reason that she worked out was i think the reason why people didn't like him is because he was so evangelical he constantly pushed into people the need to be saved the need to be born again and any time they would respond with well i've been a member here i don't care How, are you born again boy that'll ruffle some religious feathers in a hurry listen to bethan about her own experience though i was born into a christian family christened as a baby confirming the christening on becoming a church member at 12 years old, and so I did not know what else was needed. I was afraid of God and afraid of dying and eschewed evil because of this. I tried to do all a Christian should do in such duties as church attendance, and I accepted the Bible as the Word of God, but I had no inner peace or joy, and I knew nothing of the glorious release of the Gospel. I rejoiced to see men and women converted, and I envied them and sometimes wished when I saw their radiant faces and changed lives that I, had, that I had been a drunkard or worse so that I could also be converted. I never imagined that I needed to be converted, having always been a Christian or that I could get any more than I had already. God graciously used Martin's morning sermons to open my eyes and show me myself and my need and and and, and slowly that happened and, and there was despondency and difficulty for Bethan and what ended up happening was a a brother church member finally came to her and he was one of those church members there's a few of you out there and I'm not looking anybody in the eyes cuz there'll be questions later uh there's a few of you out there that just have a terse succinct in your face way of saying everything we love you. We don't like what you do all the time, but we love you. That's an outworking of, the, of being born again. And this dear brother, in his characteristically blunt way, looked at Bethan, the pastor's wife, the good doctor's wife, and said, Now, Mrs. Jones, your husband is always saying we must be born again. How about you, Mrs. Jones? Are you saved? She writes, I was two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the Gospel was. I used to listen to him and on Sunday morning and I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I don't really know anything about it. I recall sitting in the study in Victoria Road and I was unhappy. I suppose that was conviction. I felt a burden of sin and I shall always remember Martin saying as he looked through his books, Read John James, the anxious inquirer directed, I've never forgotten what I read in that book. It showed me how wrong was the idea that my sin could be greater than the merit of the blood of Christ. His death was well able to clear all of my sins away. There at last, I found release and I was happy. Friends, what it means to be born again, I think, is found succinctly. And it's a glorious mystery that God would save any one of us. Some people hear the reality that it is God and God alone who must save, and they get angry. Well, then why, God, why doesn't God save everyone? You should humble yourself in the dust if you ever want to ask such a question. Because the real question is, why would He save any one of us? Why would he pour out his grace into my life? Why would he love this church? Why would he, in spite of me, reveal his grace and glory? What it means to be born again. John chapter 10. Turn there with me, and we'll be finished. John chapter 10, starting in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will You keep us in suspense? If You are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is is another seven chapters on, folks. And Jesus has been showing all of the signs. Jesus has been fulfilling prophecy. They know who He is. The problem isn't that Jesus hasn't been clear. The problem is they haven't been born again. And He answers... I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What does it mean to be born again? It means this, that we are His sheep and as He has told us, His sheep hear His voice and we know Him and we follow Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before Your throne marveling at the the reality of the new birth, that it's not something we can do. It's something that only You can do. Father, for those of us who are in this room who have heard Your voice, who have seen the glorious reality that in our goodness, in our ability, in our morality, in our own understandings, in our own efforts, we were never good enough to be redeemed. You revealed to us our wretchedness. And by grace, you birthed us anew, such that we ran to you in faith and repentance. Father, we thank you for that reality. If there's one here today under the sound of the the reality of new birth and the gospel, the, the, the truth that in the fullness of time you sent Jesus into the world to pay the penalty for the sins of those who you would call unto yourself. Father, would you do what only you can do? Open their eyes, birth them anew, give them new life. Father, if, if they're struggling through to see and to inquire as to who Christ is, I pray, Father, that You would give them a hunger for Your Word, the, the ability to be in Your Word and to, to read, and that You would open their hearts and minds to the reality of what it reveals about Jesus, what it reveals about their own dead and sinful souls. And Father, I pray that You would do the miraculous work of of again giving new life. Father, I pray that this church would be committed to proclaiming the new birth in a biblically faithful way. I pray that this wouldn't create controversy. I pray it would create genuine worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.